0: Welcome to the Bold SLP Podcast. We are so happy that you're here and can't wait to share with you all of the amazing conversations we've been having.
1: We are the co-founders of the Bold SLP Collective, and we are also your hosts, Lisa, Desi, and myself, Ingrid. Each of us has a variety of experiences in all things bilingual and bimodal speech-language pathology. You'll get to know us pretty well on here. We started this podcast to share our lived experiences, but also because we want to bring advocacy and cultural humility to the forefront of every speech therapy conversation. We hope that you'll join us each week, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Bold SLP podcast. I'm Ingrid, and I'm here with Lisa today. Desi is out, but I also have two of my very favorite friends from BEAM. Julissa and Jackie, they are med SLPs, bilingual, bicultural, and I'm gonna bring them up here to introduce themselves. Uh, Jackie, do you wanna go first?
2: Sure. Um, My name is Jackie Rodriguez. I'm in heading into my eighth year of practice as a speech language pathologist. I have worked in a variety of settings. Um, I started my career off as a bilingual diagnostician in the schools um, and then I also had a small caseload and dabbled in some private practice therapy. Then I moved into travel speech pathology where I worked primarily in skilled nursing facilities and I recently got married and moved back to Georgia, which is my home state. And now I'm um, working on becoming full-time PRN. So I'm working in a variety of medical settings, um, ALFs, SNFs, and then inpatient rehabilitation. And um, I am an L1 English, L2 Spanish speaker. I'm a third generation Puerto Rican American on my dad's side of the family. And then my mom's side of the family is African-American. Thank you, Jackie. How Thank about you, me. Jalisa?
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Jelisa Krasafi, and I've been a speech language pathologist for five years, mainly in acute and intensive care um, settings. Uh, I'm currently living in Miami, but I'm a born and raised New Yorker. Um, I'm first gen born in this country to immigrants who came in their mid-20s. My mom is from Peru and my dad is from Cyprus. Um, I grew up with such a love for language and ended up studying linguistics for my undergrad and then stumbled upon speech pathology. I honestly really didn't think I'd end up in the medical setting, but I took a dysphagia course, my one and only course, and fell in love with the field and no one was going to stop me otherwise um so yeah that's about me welcome i'm so
1: glad you are here um i know you are super busy and you've been on my list of guests to have for season one and on so i'm so glad and thankful that you're here full disclosure i met you guys on instagram on clubhouse and we've kind of just been hanging out since 2020 doing bilingual things, doing Clubhouse. You did a presentation on Clubhouse. We would do chats on there and then Beam got started with Sarah. So uh, I've known you guys on the internet and I've met Jackie in person as well. So I'm very excited. My first question for you is how did you two meet each other?
2: Do you want to answer this Julisa? or do you want me to?
3: I mean, I can start off on like my side because I think there's two sides of the story, but um, I think I was on Facebook or Instagram, some social platform, and just seeing how there was not really a good representation of how to address cognitive communication in the medical setting. And I started following Jackie and just realized like how passionate she was about all of this. And I sent her a message saying, hey, like, would you want to get together and maybe like start educating people on like how to consider um, other cultures and other languages when completing cognitive assessments? And Jackie was like, actually another girl, Brianna, who is also part of our bilingual med SLPs, um, she was also interested and that's how we all got started. <laughs>
2: I think Julissa did a really good job of summarizing how we met. Um, The only thing that I would add is that at the time that I connected with both her and Brianna, that was when there was a lot of controversy going on in the um, like medical SLP Instagram world, like, particularly with. Um, What happened with Dr. Humbert and um, I know me and Brianna had been talking a lot about how underrepresented bilingual SLPs were and how a lot of the conversations surrounding how to serve our bilingual patients were of you know, kind of, oh, who can send me these, you know, who can send me a handout that's translated to Spanish that I can give to my Spanish speaking patients. And we all felt like really frustrated. And then Julissa also reached out as well. So um, there's just this passion behind the bilingual medical SLPs page with wanting to serve um, not only our bilingual patients, but also the bilingual medical SLPs who, you know, when I feel like in general, like most bilingual SLPs are kind of on their own island and have to just figure out things on their own. But like, it's especially so if you're a bilingual medical SLP, because there's just not a lot out there. So
1: I was gonna ask Elisa too, because we're so pediatric focused. (laughs) I was gonna ask you, did you even take more than one dysphagia class? Because I didn't
0: no and I think mine was in the summer too so it was like a really condensed one and then a yeah, short okay. like stint in the hospital but there's there's some stuff like I, I I've been working so out of the med field that like some little things that you say are just like going and I should know these so no oh, no no it's okay uh, so Jackie mm-hmm. in your bio you said PRN and sniff. can we just mm-hmm. get all those words maybe
2: Yes. Okay, sorry. So PRN is basically as needed. So I am stubborn, and I don't want to give up the travel speech therapy lifestyle. And I just like am trying my hardest not to commit to a full time job. And so PRN essentially technically what PRN should mean is if a facility has a permanent speech language pathologist that needs to take time off for a doctor's appointment or for vacation then I come in and fill in for that person but with the current state of healthcare and insurance being really you know not great what happens a lot with hospitals and and different facilities in general is um a facility might need like let's say they might need an slp that works for like 20 hours a week they don't have the budget to hire a full-time speech pathologist so it's cheaper for them to just pay per diem or as needed a prn therapist that comes in and so when you work prn you don't get like medical insurance you don't get benefits or anything like that so i you know, invest privately, and then I'm on my husband's insurance. So that's what PRN means. And then Ingrid just mentioned as well that PRN, when you look at prescriptions, so sometimes you might have a PRN medication, and that just means as needed. So it's the same thing with working. Um, And then a SNF stands for skilled nursing facility, I might have said ALF as well, that's assisted living. And so SNFs, Um, or skilled nursing facilities basically have two functions. You can either like, let's say your grandma falls and breaks her hip because she has some underlying dementia. Um, So you can come in for short-term rehab and get physical occupational and speech therapy. We would teach her safety awareness, maybe some memory strategies and grandmom's able to walk again, she recalls her safety strategies, and then she goes home. Or grandma might come, and after three months, she still can't walk, and she needs a Hoyer lift to be able to lift her out of the bed into the wheelchair, and your family just cannot provide that level of care. Then she could stay at the SNP as a long-term care resident, where she gets nursing, and then usually those residents are assessed, like, quarterly, to see if they've had any um, decline, like either physically or cognitively, or even with swallowing. And so we can come in on a quarterly basis as well to provide more therapy as needed.
1: I feel bad because I feel like I've talked about sniffs and PRN before too, and I never explained. It.
0: I get them in context, you know, but I, I never got like the full definition. And like, I could have looked it up, you know, but I was like, I'm never gonna work in that.
2: Thank you. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> I love it. I don't really think I understood what a sniff was either. Like, I didn't realize people just went to like SNiff's for rehab until I became a speech pathologist. So
1: it's a whole so- other world. Well, you see why I love talking to Julissa and Jackie, because I always learn so much from oh. them. Um, and I think it's really important the visibility that you bring to the field and the need for more bilingual and bicultural SLPs. I know that on your form, you wanted to share some tips for future students. And I think this is a perfect section where we're like digging deep into what med SLPs do. Uh, What are some of those tips that you wanted to share with future bilingual SLPs or even SLPs who may want to be moving into the med SLP world?
2: Sure. Um, So I transitioned from schools to sniffs like literally in the worst time ever like March of 2020. Um, So I feel like if I can do it, you can do it too. And I also just feel like there's like a lot of fear mongering when it comes to transitioning from schools to the medical side. Um, I think my biggest recommendation would be to um, definitely take a lot of CEUs on Um, swallowing that's the biggest learning curve when it comes to working on the medical side because truly like um, treatment of cognition and even treatment of aphasia is very it's similar to what we do Um, on the pediatric side of speech pathology and then um, another thing is finding a mentor I know like since the pandemic it's really hard to shadow SLPs in medical settings because a lot of facilities have really like strict rules but one thing that really helped me was I have um two friends, one that works in a SNF and the other that works in uh, several different medical settings. And I, when I was at work, I would just come up with like a list of questions and I would text them throughout the day. And then if it was something that could wait until the end of the week, I would call them and just have a conversation with them or send them a long email at the end of the week with all my questions. And that was really helpful in um, helping to bridge the gap with things that I didn't understand.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what Jackie said. I think another thing that I'm learning, especially having taken a student um, while I was still working at the, my previous hospital, was advocating for yourself for these medical placements while you're in graduate school. Um I did. I'm also a very vocal person. I knew I wanted medical and I sat in my clinic director's office week after week saying, that's nice that you placed me in a high school, but I don't want this placement. And it's really hard as a student to do that. I know not everyone is very opinionated like me, or I don't know. I just, I, I kind of just it's it's now or never because yeah. you're, you don't go back to grad school and repeat your clinical internships. You only have four semesters, maybe five, if, depending on the program that you're in. Um, and so I said, you know, what do I have to lose? Maybe my clinic director doesn't love me. But at the end of the day, it's my profession and my career. And um, so I pushed and pushed and pushed very early on. I asked like older cohorts. Where are you guys doing your medical setting? So I made a list of the hospitals that my university had contracts with to even just present it, be like, this is where I want to be. Do I need um an interview? What do I need to prepare for this? And I would speak to the students and the cohorts ahead of me to see how to best prepare. So yeah, and I know it's scary. I don't want to like discourage any students who think I could never do that, but you know, just ask yourself, what do I need for myself and my career? And this is going to be a great opportunity for me and the clients and patients I can serve. So it's bigger than just a relationship with your clinical director. That's something I had to work with, with my previous student telling her that it's okay to disagree and advocate for what you want. Um, And at the end of the day, she did get the placement she wanted. So I was really happy for her. Um, and then echoing off of what Jackie said about CEUs, absolutely. And I'm also a big advocate of sharing free CEUs with my students because I know I did not have money <laughs> at the time to be paying for CEUs and not getting the credit for it. So um, I definitely had like I've actually started creating like a free CEU type Um, resource to just give people to see um, where they can start getting some information and getting uh, familiar with some technical terms that are used in the medical world and just diving a little bit in there. You don't have to understand it fully, but at least you're gaining some knowledge of maybe a, a specific population that you might like or more information about swallowing because it is a lot of what we do in the medical field. Um, but yeah, I think that's about all the things I wanted to add from what Jackie said.
1: I think that's all really great. And I love what you said about advocating for yourself because part of what I've been learning a lot this season is, um, yeah, it can get a little scary, but you can do it in your own way. So like you were saying, you prepared, you asked the people who came before you, you had a solution for your clinical director. You weren't just like demanding what you wanted. You had a plan, you had an action plan. uh, And I think that's important to relate to students. And then sometimes we don't get that voice until it's very later on in in our careers. I know it took me like maybe three years into my career to find my voice. So I think that's really great advice. And then I know we're gonna wanna ask you for that resource to link on the show notes because people are gonna be DMing us.
0: I just wanted to add that we had a guest uh, a few weeks back, Elaine, who was talking about supervisors and professors and faculty who just make decisions for you. You know, you seem like someone who belongs with preschoolers or you seem like someone. And so I love that you're like, I'm going to be in a medical setting, no matter what, this is what I love. I love that.
2: Yeah. I wanted to add in that same vein um, to what Lisa was saying is that Um, I feel like SLPs of color especially get routed towards the school or pediatric side of speech pathology and I think that's an even bigger issue like it's bigger than just speech language pathology like we see that just in general in college that black and latino students tend to be pushed towards like education or social work and areas like that. And, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with those fields. Like there are amazing teachers and those are great jobs. However, it shouldn't be that like, we are having to like fight to be in these spaces. And I think that there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens on the medical side of speech pathology. So, um, yeah, I think it is, you know, really important to find your voice early. And I also feel like when you're a person of color, like you have to find that voice quicker if you want to be able to have the opportunities that you really want in this field, especially if you're wanting to be a medical SLP.
0: I know you're not undercutting the education system in any way. I know exactly what you mean. I remember what professor telling me, like there's power in the white coat. And I know when I worked in the in a medical clinic and then also in like a preschool at the same time, like two days here, two days there, uh, I was using the same strategies, the same techniques, the same everything. But the respect I had when I was in the hospital clinic setting Versus when I was working with parents and teachers in the school it was so different. And it was the same strategies, all because I was a little closer to pediatricians when I was in the clinic. There's something about society that just respects medical professionals more, even though speech pathologists are medical professionals. But it depends on what mm-hmm. setting they're in that
1: people decide their respect level. Yeah, that's a whole. Oof. <laughs> yeah,
3: that's a whole. Uh, uh,
1: yeah, 50% of us are in the schools. Uh, But I do know that we've talked about this before, Jackie and Julissa, that it feels very intentional that there is even less representation on the medical side of things because of that prestige that Lisa was mentioning. (laughs) It seems like, oh, you made it. But and I wanted to kind of segue into our next question of ethical issues that come up in the medical setting, because I feel a lot of these issues, issues come up because of the lack of representation and one big thing that we have talked about before is how um, to ethically use interpreters in the med SLP setting. A lot of people don't re- even realize that bilingual med SLPs exist or that there's a need for interpreters and service providers who are bilingual in the field.
2: So what do you guys think? It's funny because the other day, um, a person at one of my 5 million jobs made a comment to me (laughs) and was like oh it's so surprising to me a bilingual medical SLP I guess because we have interpreters here like most bilingual SLPs just decide to work with children and it was like one of those moments where like I was so shocked in the moment that like, I didn't really know how to respond. And now like looking back, I'm like, Jackie, you should have said this and you should have said that and blah, 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 blah. But it's really frustrating to me that like, people think that because there are interpreters on the medical side of the field or, and honestly, that's a whole different conversation. Cause I feel like, you know, depending on if you're in a hospital versus in a Smith, like and SNFs a lot of times there are not interpreters but it frustrates me that that was the mindset that an interpreter could replace the job of a bilingual SLP and that schools have bilingual SLPs because there are interpreters yeah so it's really frustrating and I also think like another issue that I see is that because people don't have a good understanding of bilingualism and how like people learn second languages and also just the American centric idea of how most Americans who have been in the United States for generations Um, who speak another language learned their second language in school like this is such a country of like monolingualism that people don't consider that when you have a patient that is bilingual that they likely just learned English for their job and that when they go home they might exclusively speak Spanish or they might exclusively speak Haitian Creole and so when you're prioritizing English in your therapy sessions that person might not be able to be rehabilitated so that they have the communication skills to be able to connect with their culture with their family and with their community.
3: Yeah, those are really great points, Jackie, and I feel like I'm very um in a different bubble when it comes to the hospitals, and I've worked at four different hospitals, and each one of them had some form of interpretation, most of them had them over the phone, and other ones had them in person. So the in-person ones, I would say if I were to choose in a perfect world, I'd prefer in-person interpreters because they are able to read body language. They're able to see me and what I'm trying to get out of the patient instead of um, waiting to see when my communication break is and the patients begins, you know, like over the phone, that's just it's so impersonable. And I mean, some of them have video with their iPads, too, but it's still a little challenging. Um, And I think one of the bad cultures that exists in the medical world is also undermining that being Bilingual is an asset. Um, I think the medical world is so focused on these emergency and life saving procedures, which, of course, are super important. However, it doesn't replace the fact that these patients deserve to have this information given to them in their preferred language. So for example, I'll see a lot of nurses just try to get by, I'll see physicians try to get by by just saying like, hola, como estas? And, you know, that's the extent of their Spanish. And maybe that person has something more to say, but, you know, they are, they try to, and the doctor just says, okay, okay, and leaves, or they don't try to because they've realized their provider does not speak the language that they speak. And same in the in our field, um, I've had many coworkers say, Oh, maybe I wouldn't do a communication or a language evaluation in Spanish, but I can do a bedside swallow assessment in Spanish. And I'm guilty. In the beginning, I thought, you know what? That's fine. Yeah, you just have to tell them what to do. But now that I understand the field more, how are you going to ethically obtain consent? for this assessment? How are you going to explain if you're recommending NPO status, which is nothing by mouth? How are you going to explain that you're recommending a swallow study, what that entails, if they have any allergies, if they don't want to participate? Do they fully understand what you are explaining and asking of them if you cannot speak their language maybe i i know how to say in french smile move your tongue and i'll get a general understanding of where their swallow function is but it's more than just that and now i'm a strong believer if anyone was to ever tell me i can do a swallow evaluation in spanish i will ask them those follow-up questions and if you're going to recommend a diet change and education can you explain that to the family no then get your interpreter
2: I wanted to add as well that um, the research is there about the effects of language discordance, which is when a provider does not speak the same language as their patient, like patients who don't have access to their most proficient language, tend to have poor health, health outcomes. They have a greater risk of rehospitalization. So when we're thinking about speech pathology, that's patients that go home who are not properly educated on dysphagia and safe swallowing strategies and the safest diet, they end up getting rehospitalized with aspiration pneumonia. These patients have a higher risk of rehospitalization due to multiple strokes, um, complications due to diabetes. And you also see the same thing with like cultural discordance as well. So when the culture of the SLP is different from the patient, um, And I think talking about swallowing disorders and dysphagia, that's also like a huge issue as well. And, and that also ties into using an interpreter because, um, you know, like Julissa said, there are definitely those issues that you have with, um, your interpreter, maybe not speaking the same dialect or speak, not speaking, um, not being from the same country, but I think there's also like an important role that interpreters can play in being cultural brokers as well and helping you to really understand what a patient's cultural diet looks like or even what a patient's um, cultural communication style looks like and what our role is in helping to um, bridge those gaps and bring about better outcomes. Julie, so I'm thinking
0: about um someone just saying like a bunch of memorized scripts to do a swallow eval or, or whatever. And I, I think about our field and how they they kind of want replaceable people, right? They just want anyone to be in and out. Um, if you can't do it, she'll do it. If she can't do it, he'll do it. And it's terrible because there's no real connection made with patients and then it affects the outcomes like Jackie said. So it's it happens everywhere, you know, screening little ones. Like, oh, she doesn't really speak French, but she could read like the questions on the screen or so. What if the child asks a question? Will you be able to answer? Yeah, I I totally
3: relate to that story. That's another reason why a lot of skills that you obtain from working in the pediatric side, you can transfer them over into your medical SLP world um, and advocate for your patients, advocate for yourself as a bilingual SLP a lot of questions I get too, is if you get paid more for it, I don't, I mean, I'd love to, I think it's a huge asset. I think it's something that makes me less easily replaceable. Um, But unfortunately, (laughs) some healthcare systems just don't view it that way. And I mean, it doesn't stop me from taking positions, but it's definitely something that, you know, I'm hoping we move towards because we are not easily replaceable. The more highly skilled you are, the harder you are to replace, whether it's highly skilled in a certification or being bilingual. It's hard to be bilingual. It's hard to have lived experiences you can share with your patients. That's can't be taught to someone that's not from a specific culture. So what we have to offer is not easily replaceable and, cannot be replaced by a monolingual SLP using an interpreter. I mean, I'd lo- I'm not against any monolingual SLPs using interpreters. I'd love to educate my coworkers on how to be a little bit more culturally sensitive when using interpreters. Some people are open to it, some people think it's a waste of time, which is unfortunate. However, you can still reach some people into thinking that I've even um, talked to physical therapists and occupational therapists, and sometimes I've gotten more buy-in with them than people from my previous speech teams, but it's just educating. And you might actually be the first person to say something. So always speak up for yourself and your patients. Again, my advocacy quote, should that be my last word? I already picked it.
1: Julissa, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you that because you saying that really struck me. And I think I even have that clip on my Instagram page where you were talking about how the skills are pretty much transferable and just giving a lot of empowerment to us school-based SLPs who really do feel kind of diminished sometimes by a lot of our peers who are met SLPs. Uh, and you were you and Jackie And Brianna were the first med SLPs I ever met who didn't make me feel less than or small. And I've always really appreciated that from you guys. Um, But we're getting on to our last question. I know I don't want to rush it because I know this is really important to you guys. And so important that you both got into it during the interpreter conversation because it's all kind of connected. You guys are really strong voices out there on Instagram about health literacy, especially for our patients and clients from diverse cultural and linguistic backgrounds. Uh, In a nutshell, how do these issues uh, intersect with what we do as SLPs?
2: Oh boy, (laughs) it's hard to summarize in a nutshell it's totally, totally connected. And I think that, um, you know, like you just mentioned, it's all connected with what we just talked about with like, how I was talking about the research and pointing to um, health outcomes for our bilingual patients. But um, I think one of the biggest things that one grad school did not prepare me for, and even like, some of the things that I've done on my own to learn more about bilingualism, something that it didn't really prepare me for is um, just how to work with a patient that comes from like a very uneducated background. That is really, it's very difficult, especially when you're looking at cognition um, because so much of our cognitive abilities are based in our education. So like to give you an example, Well, sometimes I have patients who might have like two or three years of education from a a different country that has a completely different educational system and making sure that like even when I'm explaining things like dysphagia, which is so complicated and trying to help people like understand, making sure that I'm breaking it down in a way that my patients understand. Like I always think of this one patient and I was like showing him a picture of his anatomy. And I was explaining the esophageal phase of the um, swallow. And I use the word esophagus, esophago, in Spanish. And like, to me, like, esophagus like I knew what that was and I feel like everybody knew what that was and he was like you mean estomago estomago is la palabra and I was like no esophago and I had to like explain that like this is the tube that like connects to your stomach so just things like that and checking yourself and being able to adjust your language to make sure that you're empowering that patient to be able to fully understand And even, okay, I promise this is my last point. I've said like 10 million things. But also um, another thing that I see, especially with our um, Latino population and our black population, and this is something that I hold very close to my heart because um, type two diabetes was rampant on my abuela side of the family. Like literally every, my abuela and every single one of her siblings passed away from complications of diabetes. Um, one thing that I frequently see is that So, you know, we have like swallowing problems, cognitive problems, um, aphasia caused by um, that are usually like secondary to some other disease. So whether that's like a stroke that maybe that stroke was caused by poor blood um, pressure management, or um, maybe this person has like... um, Vascular dementia, which could be caused by uncontrolled diabetes and vascular changes to the brain. Um, So, even sometimes it's more like our role is more than just breaking down what aphasia is or breaking down what dysphagia is. Sometimes it's breaking down like what diabetes is and helping our patients to like really understand that. And then saying, okay, I'm going to give you a list or we're going to come up with a list together and you're going to take this list and you're going to bring it to the doctor. And these are the questions that you need to ask so you can fully understand what's going on with your body so yeah that was basically word vomit but those are the types of things that I think about when it comes to health literacy and our role as bilingual SLPs
3: (laughs) yeah Jackie I feel like you you honestly covered it all I mean it's something that I had newly learned because, you know, you think of literacy and you think of someone's ability to read and write, which I did have patients that were illiterate, but I soon learned someone who can't read or write does not necessarily mean someone that does not understand their health conditions. And then the opposite, someone who can read or write, who may be highly educated as an engineer or an artist or an architect has absolutely no idea what's going on with their health because it might be their first time in the hospital. They might have never known what happened with their family members um, in terms of their health history. They know, they don't have records of any type of health conditions that run in their family. So I try to just understand what they understand like that my biggest question no matter who I'm talking to is you know do you other than like the orientation questions we have to ask of like why are you here you know some patients will give us answers like oh you know I had a stroke or I fell okay And what's happened since then? You know, I like to get a little bit of insight into what they understand that's been going on. Do they know what specialists have come to see them, especially because I'm in an acute care hospital. So people are in and out. Not everyone introduces themselves. Not everyone has the best bedside manner. Not everyone's there longer than 30 seconds. So I try to be that person that slows it down for them a little bit, Um, in terms of my interactions with them, like I'm not going to just be an in and out person, I really want them to understand what's going on. Um, and I will say too, one of the biggest populations, I feel like I have to do a lot of education in is tracheostomies. Um, and those are tubes that are placed surgically, Um, inside your trachea or your breathing tube when either you have an obstruction in your upper airway of your mouth and nose, or you needed um, prolonged um, ventilatory support. Um, So you're on life support breathing through a ventilator and you haven't got off of it soon enough. And then the doctors will put this tube in your neck. So I do get a lot of patients and family members that don't understand why it was placed or don't understand that there is the possibility for it to come out or that they didn't lose their voice forever. Um, And I've learned that especially with those patients with low health literacy, pictures and visuals are a lifesaver. I am someone that can't carry things with me because I lose them everywhere. So I have one little um, clipboard that folds into my pocket because otherwise it'd be lost but I have all these crinkly pictures that I keep reusing to show people this is what it is I ask them to teach it back to me being like where where is this did you lose your voice is it still there how can we get it back and that we can take it out but we need a lot of conversations with the doctor so That's something I love to do, show visuals of things. Um, I also do pull out my phone and I have some apps where I show, you know, I think there's like an MBS IMP app that it shows exactly what I mean when something goes the wrong way. And you have like a quick little video to show people what that means. Um, Because also there's this misconception that aspiration means choking means occlusion of the airway, like having to do the Heimlich. And, you know, I'll explain like liquid will not occlude an airway the way a piece of grape will. So it's a little bit different to the concern. Um, But yeah, I'm really big fan of visuals. And I really think Jackie covered most of it, if not all. Um, I can only just probably give more examples. (laughs) But um, yes, I feel like we do need to meet our patients where they are every single time. Um, And on top of everything when like Jackie was bringing up all the research supporting this it's also the law and i just don't know why people don't follow the law like it needs patients have the right to fully understand what they're saying granted some patients do say yes because they feel like a bother they feel like they want people to think they know it but this is not the time and place to pretend that you don't and i think as providers we have to take it a step up and ensure that they understand especially with very serious conditions that can lead to serious consequences like Jackie was saying so I don't know I feel like we have a responsibility to do that and especially since we are coming from these diverse backgrounds and understanding that you know my grandma didn't fully understand her medical history so I view all these little Latina ladies like my grandma and what she would want and what she needs. And maybe some people don't have that to think back on, but at least as being bilingual, bicultural SLPs, we do have that. And we can see these little old ladies as our abuelas and what they might need when they're in the hospital or a sniff or an inpatient rehab. I'm
1: making this connection to Dr. Choi Pena. Lisa, do you remember a conversation with her? when she was saying how disrespectful it is for these families when their child gets diagnosed to not tell them the whole truth about the diagnosis and that's what I'm kind of connecting back to what Julissa and Jackie were saying uh, with health liter- literacy when all these assumptions or all this rushing is done it's just disrespectful to not tell the patient the extent of what's going on and to really Be open with like, here are your options. Here are my recommendations. Here are the facts. What do you need from me? Uh, And I think that's a really big connection that I'm making just now hearing you guys talk about it. I hadn't connected those dots before because I feel we do that a lot in the school setting. And I'm with Julissa. It is the law. We are supposed to provide informed consent every step of the way of our screenings, evaluations, like IEP, writing, and then treatment. We we're supposed to be informing these parents of what we're doing with their children every step of the way. And I do feel like there's some res- resistance from a lot of other providers. There's so much empathy
0: in, in both of your voices. It's just beautiful. And you both sound like incredible net SLPs. I mean, just incredible. Um, You talking about how like you're thinking about your grandma and like what she would have wanted. There's such a, There's such a power and knowledge in the experience that you're bringing. And I'm going back to Jackie's story with like someone being like, oh, you're a bilingual SLP, but we already have an interpreter. Like she's like replaceable with an interpreter and none of the knowledge and skills and experience that she's bringing to the table is worth anything. And not only are you bringing all of your skill and knowledge and advocacy to the table, you're also bringing your culture, which is like empathy embedded inside of you you know and I'm sure you're not just treating the Latina grandmas like that you're treating all the patients like that like I I need you to understand exactly what I'm saying I need to make sure that these assessments are catered to you so I can get a true understanding of what your life is like and how I can help you in the life that you actually live and not the life that someone who wrote a textbook 10 years ago thinks you might live So um, I don't know if we're ready for our last word yet, Ingrid, because I already have one. Um, My last, my last word is, is fight. But I know it's kind of like advocacy, but it's really about like fighting for what you want. It's fighting for what you want, fighting for others, fighting for those who don't have a voice. Like, I feel both of you have like so much fight in you. So, and Ingrid and I are also gaining that, but I don't know if we were like that bold at their age.
2: (laughs) So fight is my last word.
1: Becky, you unmuted. Are, are you ready?
2: Sure. I also wanted to say thank you for those words. That was really sweet, Lisa. <laughs> um, I think, okay, this is so like ugh, serious of me. My word, its words are social determinants of health. And I think that as you continue to learn more about health literacy, that those are really important to guide you and how to continue to provide equity towards your patients.
3: I am not going to go with my advocacy because I've talked it up way too much, but I think it's such like a word, but I'll explain it. So I, mine is options because I want students to know they have options when it comes to their clinical placements. Um, you are not just stuck. To pick a school-based placement. Again, nothing wrong with it, but if you want options, they are there. Options. And then also providing options for your patients. Um, the option of having a bilingual, bicultural patient. The option of choice in their preferred language, the option of being provided this information in ways that they understand by someone who understands them. So I feel like that encompassed what I wanted to say. I'm wavering between
1: two feelings. One is the feeling of advocacy, but like you said, Julissa, it feels like an empty word. So I kind of want to put it into an action So I was thinking, practicing advocacy, like it needs to start really early. And I feel like we start there. Like I see you guys know, my daughters, all three of you, I feel like it starts, we start that way, like being really strong advocates for ourselves and saying what we want when we want it. And then society takes care of like, shutting that off for us as we go along. So I was thinking about that. But then I think the word I'm going to take away, and I want to leave for for you guys, how I feel about you and how I feel about us is, we are irreplaceable. That's it. Yes, <laughs> we are. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for being here. Before we go, let's plug all the things that you're doing. I know you guys did a course last uh, summer. We're gonna put in that resource, Julissa, that you had. I still have that resource too from our Clubhouse times. The uh, moving from school to med SLP. Um, but what else do you guys have going on at the bilingual med SLP group?
3: We are going to start a little bit more. Two of our members. Just got married and <laughs> getting married like right now. So um, I think we'll have a lot more to share in the future. And maybe Jackie has some ideas cooking up, but I'm hoping that we can um, post more and expand more on the social media page and also maybe create a few more um, educational webinars.
2: Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um would love to collaborate and do more. For our um bilingual medical SLPs. Um, you I also have my own separate Instagram. You can find me at unlearnwithme.bslp And I share little bits of information about bilingualism and race and ethnicity and all that fun stuff.
1: <laughs> Thank you guys so much for being here.
3: Thank you for having us. This was fun. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening and supporting the Bold SLP Collective. You can find a closed captioned version of this podcast on our YouTube channel. We will also have show notes on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you do all the podcast things. Follow, subscribe, download, and review. And don't forget, we love hearing from you. So connect with us on Instagram at the Bold SLP Collective. Stay bold and humble. See you next time.